Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. In the 12th century BC, there was a dramatic change in the kingdoms and empires of the Mediterranean, a series of events known as the Bronze Age Collapse. Over the course of perhaps 50 years, the great palaces of the Mycenaeans became ruins, the Hittite Empire of Anatolia broke into pieces, the mysterious sea peoples attacked Egypt, literacy disappeared from Greece. As the Iron Age arrived, a web of trade routes across the region fell apart. Once new rulers emerged, their kingdoms were much smaller. What exactly happened in the 12th century, and perhaps more importantly why that happened, and who won as well as who lost, is a matter for debate, informed by the texts that remain and new archaeological discoveries. With me to discuss the Bronze Age collapse are John Bennett, Director of the British School at Athens and Professor of Aegean Archaeology at the University of Sheffield, Linda Hewlin, Research Officer at the Oxford Centre for Maritime Archaeology at the University of Oxford, and Simon Stoddart, Reader in Prehistory at the University of Cambridge. John Bennett, what do historians mean by the term the Bronze Age? Well, the Bronze Age, it's important to remember, is our term for, for this period, and it was, uh, it's part of a sequence of uh, Stone Age, Bronze Age and Iron Age, which was essentially developed uh, in a prehistoric environment, an environment without tax. It was developed at the early part of the 19th century by Christian Thompson, uh, who was director of the Danish National Museum, to bring order, chronological order, to the finds from prehistoric Scandinavia. Um, and the sequence uh, implies um, a development where stone was the prime material, followed by a period in which bronze was a prime material and iron uh, took over. Um, and that brought chronology to a period that didn't have historical documents, to an area that had historical documents. That was then generalised um, to many other parts of the world, um, but one of the consequences of that is that the Bronze Age doesn't happen at the same time in every part of the world. So in the part of the world that we're particularly uh, interested in, um, the Bronze Age ends around about 1200, 1100 BC, uh, but it starts quite a long time before that. How long? Um, in Greece, we would talk about sometime just before 3000 BC, so we have about a 2,000-year Bronze Age, as it were. But is it different in, say, the Hittite Kingdom? Uh, not in the Hittite Kingdom, and in places like the Hittite Kingdom and Egypt and so on, there is a historical chronology which, if you like, sort of supersedes the, the need for an archaeological material-based chronology. But we're loosely, we're generally going to be talking about the very the great East Mediterranean power, so let's yeah. stack it there for this conversation. Um, when did it get going there? We're really talking about the second millennium and particularly about the period from about 1500 to 1200 when those were the, that was the period of, of the greatest interaction between those major powers, the Hittites, as you've mentioned, in Anatolia, uh, the Egyptians in the southern uh, uh, Mediterranean, uh, and, of course, the, the friction between those two powers uh, in the uh, 14th and 13th centuries, which uh, took place along the, the coast of the Levant, modern modern-day Syria, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, and so on. And you have the Mycenaeans and the And the then Babylonians. On, on the western fringes, you yeah. have the Mycenaeans uh, in the Aegean world, uh, and the Babylonians a bit further east, yeah. Was there anything that we could say characterised these kingdoms? Characterised all of them? We can bring them together. Um, well, I think you've used the word, kingdoms. That's it, yes. um, they're, 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 they're not democracies, that's for sure. Um, and in the case of the Hittites, it's a, a multilingual um, uh, Formation, so it is properly called an empire. It it, uh, it, it fragmented and 
and uh, came together a little bit in the second millennium. And of course, at the end of the period we're talking about, it fragmented into multiple uh, different forms. Egypt was more uniform um, in the sense that it was ethnically and linguistically more uniform. So not formerly an empire, but it, it, Egypt expanded into uh, the eastern Mediterranean and it bring in uh, non-Egyptian speakers and speakers of other languages as well. Did they feel part of a group? Did they interrelate with trade in a way that made them interdependent and aware that each other's safety was important? The, the textual evidence we have, particularly in the Amarna letters, which belong to the 14th century, um, uh, BC. indicate uh, BC, yes, mm. uh, indicate um, uh, a clear understanding, uh, a language, if you like, of diplomacy, of trade at the highest level. Um, and the, the shared material culture, which, which the Mycenaeans, to some extent, to the West, participated in without being reflected textually uh, in those accounts, shows that they were using the same kinds of values, uh, metals like bronze, obviously, uh, gold, but materials like ivory, uh, blue glass, and so on. Are we talking about four or five um, kingdoms of about the same power? They're large kingdoms, aren't they? And you give us some idea of the size of these kingdoms. Are they roughly the same, except Egypt, of course, which is massive? Well, Egypt's massive, um, but it's a long, thin tube going south, yes. uh, well down to, into Africa. Um, the, the Hittite Empire, I suppose, uh, is certainly one of the largest. I mean, it, it comprises most of modern Turkey um, and into uh, uh, northern Syria now. Um, the Aegean world is, is a bit smaller um, and, of, and certainly not uh, unified, at least in my view anyway, um, multiple, multiple kingdoms there. So, so we are talking about um, uh, some variation in size. The, the Hittites and the Egyptians and the Babylonians to the east and the Assyrians coming on a bit later are larger. Simon Sodat, what was the status of bronze as a commodity in the 12th century? Well, bronze brought um, new properties, skills and opportunities and these interacted to give value to this particular commodity. One very important skill was finding the ores and you, whereas in previous periods you went to one source, here you had to bring two sources together and then have the knowledge to transform the copper and the tin by smelting them, working with them and then a second um, situation was you had to melt them together in a very precise alloy and it's this control, almost scientific control without the science that we have today that is an essential element of the value of this commodity. And another very important property was that bronze could be recycled. So there is a balance in terms of this commodity. On the one hand, it is being used and being placed in the ground, sometimes deliberately to offer opportunities to people to display themselves. On the other hand, you are finding new resources, and this sets up the whole situation of trade, which will be a major flavour of our later conversation. Where did the tin and copper come from? Um, it depends where you are situated. But in, we're in, in the Eastern in, Mediterranean, loosely. Um, in the Eastern Mediterranean, um, one key area was um, Cyprus um, for, for the copper, um, for Afghanistan, I believe, for the, the tin from the, the East. But then we, we should look at this in a much broader spectrum. We should not just look at the what I am going to describe as a little local difficulty in the Eastern Mediterranean and look at it in the Eurasian perspective. Because further west... Um, the response to um, the, the so-called collapse of these um, kingdoms was not uniformly felt. So we must bring into the equation the, the trade that goes as far as Cornwall, Sardinia, and also Central Italy. Bringing together these component parts, 
using newborn skills to put together a new material which has these qualities of display and also, as we will describe later, potential for military prowess well, as well. We'll describe them later if we get to mm. them. Let's not anticipate what we might not, not get to yeah. because we've got our own schedule too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? okay. the, the, um, you, you said it was highly skilled bringing these two copper and tin together to turn into bronze. What level of skill can you tell the listeners was employed? Well, clearly they didn't have scientific laboratories. Therefore, it had to be done by proxy approaches of colour, smell, even taste, observing the the colour of the ores as you found them, and also observing the colour of the smelting operation so that you knew precisely how much oxygen, how much um, different ingredients you put together to get the precise outcome. Because if you got the inclusion of an ally wrong by a few percent, it wouldn't have the qualities that you were looking for. In other words, copper was the dominant, um, 90% um, plus, whereas um, tin was in a, a smaller um, proportion. So was this trial and error? Were there any, any manuscripts or anything remaining saying, this is how you do it, or was it trial and, er- trial and error on the job? The great problem is that we don't see every evidence of the trial and error. So we we see the successes, and therefore it's really the outcome, the final product that we see when they've actually perfected the system. By the time we are talking about, which is broadly 1200 BC, this was a very successful operation. What difference did it make to the societies that had bronze? It gave them opportunities for exchange on not absolutely new opportunities. They built out of the, the Neolithic and the Copper Age that preceded it, but this lifted it to another level and made interaction a very powerful theme within Europe. Linda Hewlin, how intimately was bronze tied up with power? Oh, very intimately. I mean, if you are a pharaoh or a Hittite king, you have basically two jobs in life. One is to be splendid and to channel wonderful things throughout your empire and by your, by your allies. And you do that by um, giving money to temples, endowing temples, have fabulous pa- palaces, having a big countrywide building program and having the ability to build uh, fortifications. And the other is having an army to protect your territories so that you can get the stuff that you get through trade. And for those, you need bronze. You need bronze for chisels. Uh, you need bronze, you know, for cutting stone. Uh, you need uh, bronze for your weapons. So it fuels it fuels building projects. It fuels the arms that enable you to stay a military power. What was bronze supplanting? Um, well, copper and stone. And stone is used. Um, stone arrowheads uh, continue for some time. Um, copper is in general too soft. Uh, the Egyptians were at quite a disadvantage when they entered um, the Levant. They they didn't have composite bows. They they largely um, they didn't have chariots. They imported all this technology, and some of this was to do with um, the new fighting techniques that required swords as well and, and different kinds of swords. But bronze meant that you, on the whole, you're saying that if you had bronze, you were more powerful. Yeah. And no, you went you, for you, bronze you, to make yourself more powerful. Yes. So the trade increased. Yes. And that, yeah, it enables you to um, inhabit territories, which means you can control t- the trade within those territories. How can you give us some idea of the web of trade in this in this part of the Mediterranean, um, let's say from Cyprus to the east and and round there? Well, what's going on there? We obviously there's got to be copper and tin, but there's oil, I presume. Can you give us some idea of the intensity? Yes, and we have a good idea from um, the Amarna letters and other texts which show what... It has been mentioned twice. Can you say exactly what they were? Okay, the Amarna letters is an archive from um, the 
Egyptian capital uh, under um, Akhenaten, and it's copies of correspondence sent to the king by by vassals and by the other great powers. And in that we get... In what century? um, 14th century, mid-14th century. And they are discussing what they term gift exchange, but it's really exchange. And so there will be requests for gold, which is is regarded as like dust in, in... Egypt. Um, And they mention all the good things. So they mention gold, they mention silver, they mention fine vessels, they mention cloth. Um, Many things that we actually don't recover archaeologically. But archaeologically, we have um, Mycenaean and Cypriot pottery spread all around the region. We have uh, jars of oil, Canaanite jars, moving out from the Levant. And we have shipwrecks, and shipwrecks give us a very precise window. So there is a shipwreck um, at Uluburun, around 1300, that sank off the coast of southern Turkey. And this was a large ship for the day, about 15 and a half metres, and it carried 10 tonnes of copper, one tonne of tin, which is the precise ratio to make bronze. But it also carried terebinth oil, uh, wine, um, some pottery as well, lots of gold and silver scrap, hippo ivory, um, elephant ivory, things that would be sent probably to the Mycenaean world for making into these fine furnitures and impressive things that would be used and, and spread around again as part of a gift exchange. Was this trade was this trade pacifically pursued? On I mean, the did whole, they raid each other's ships? Um, well, the Amarna letters and other letters do set up a framework of law. So we do get if the donkey trains carrying tin from Afghanistan through Syria to Agarit, for instance, um, if they are attacked, romantic image, isn't it? Yes, I don't know why donkey should be a romantic image, but they are. <laughs> never mind. Um, you know, if they're attacked, who pays? If your ship is attacked by pirates, who pays? If your ship is delayed in port, who pays? So when they're not exchanging gifts and marriage contracts, a lot of the correspondence is to do with who is responsible for any kind of pirate activity or, or attacks by people on land. And so the, the idea is to try and um, smooth the wheels of trade. So nothing much has changed, really, in a way. <laughs> no, well, it's well, exactly... Being silly about it. It's, These it's complications called... of ownership and who, who, how you lay claim to the property you think you have yes. is, is already uh, an issue. Yes, and, and the fact that they, they all write in Akkadian, including the Egyptians. The Akkadian being the diplomatic language of the time. It's a diplomatic language of the time. It's a club that they enter. John Bennett, let's talk about this collapse. Let's use the word collapse at the moment. What collapsed in the 12th century? Well, one can describe it in terms of political collapse, which uh, in the sense that the Hittite Empire fragmented. Um, why? Do we know why? We, we don't know why um, exactly. Um, Egypt seems to have retrenched, um, and one can correlate that retrenchment with the appearance of the Sea Peoples in certain Egyptian texts, um, whether we want to link them directly as a cause, but, but that seems to be part of that phenomenon. Um, sea but, People being, as it were, wandering marauders almost, are they? Uh, as presented in yes. the, I mean, w- what we're talking about are texts that were that were inscribed on the uh, on a temple, uh, a, a mortuary temple, 
uh, Medinet Habu of Ramses III, which describe um, these events both visually and in text. But but they are, I mean, one would have to say this is propaganda. So I mean, it's not in the interests of the the text to to make these to, to minimize, if you like, the threat of these people and, and so on. So but they were there. There were these people. They were going from place to place and having, in some cases, a destructive effect. Yes, and and there are other references and other texts from elsewhere to to them. So, so that's not, one thing. What yeah. else? And then I was going to say that in dis- describing it, one can describe, if you like, the the the, the what happened uh, on the ground. And in the case of the Mycenaean world, we have uh, a wave of destructions uh, at the the Mycenaean palace centres, which centre around about 1200 BC. Can we date those? We can date those fairly what precisely. Did, what, what sort of destruction were they? We're talking about um, in in the case of 1200 burnt destructions where where we preserve them. In the case of Pylos, for example, the the, the whole palace was burnt quite intensively. The olive oil that was there uh, added to the burning, uh, and fortunately, in the case of Pylos, this preserved a, a set of texts, about a thousand texts in the the Greek uh, language, uh, but the script called Linear B. Um, it doesn't refer to uh, marauders, unfortunately, but uh, but that, that, uh, that those were preserved by those burnt burnt destructions. Before that, there may have been a wave of earthquake destructions around about 1250 BC. They might have might Well, identifying it definitively as an earthquake destruction uh, is quite difficult archaeologically, but the but shifting walls and, the, and sometimes we get skeletons preserved um, suggests that the earlier destructions in the 13th century, about 1250 at Mycenae and Tiryns in particular, which are very close together, may have been earthquake destructions. So you're talking about, and you're, you're there's several other things, a lot of things coming together, but the effect is these great palace kingdoms were under threat being burnt, destroyed, demolished one way or another. Yeah. All of them. As far as we can tell, all of them. Some parts of the Aegean um, in the northwest Peloponnese, for example, uh, seem to, uh, in the period following, seem to have some more, uh, don't seem to have a, a, a population decline in the sense that sites continue in relatively large numbers. The region around Pylos, for example, in southwestern Peloponnese, I'm just referring to, seems to be almost deserted for a couple of centuries after this. So, the, so there are differential uh, effects, and some places may have, if you like, not exactly benefited, but not suffered to the same degree. Um, but generally speaking, if you take a step backwards, it's, it's a very broad uh, wave of, of destructions. Can you develop that, Simon Stoddard, as to what sort of changes are occurring in Europe around this time? Well, I think we We're look still talking about 12th century BC, although one of your colleagues says that everything really pivots on 1177 BC, which is, we might come to that. I can we can say that. I think it's we can say that. One date. Anyway, <laughs> never mind. Useful, easy to remember. One one seven seven. Now, what else is going on? Well, well, further west, the pattern is much more varied, <clears throat> and like, there are certain areas like Sicily, and um, particularly the site of Thapsos, which comes to an end at a broad at the same time. And there, you have a lot of Mycenaean pottery coming in, and that comes, relatively speaking, rapidly to a halt. Southern Italy, very broadly similar in terms of pattern. Little Malta, it's a bit difficult to date it, but it seems to continue in its small, low-key way. Further north, though, if you go towards um, central Italy, this seems to be a moment of growth. And so what you find in the interstices, as I like to call them, in other words, between other big places, opportunities are being taken. So there are points of growth 
which move on to the later phase after the collapse. And of course, that is what happens in central Italy. That is where the Etruscans and the Latins rise later. And they rise out of, admittedly, several centuries later, but they arise out of these opportunities that have been presented. Several, cen- several <coughs> centuries is quite a stretch. So it, we it, is, it is a stretch. We can talk about collapse before you rush to revival, can't we, really? Well, and, and just a second. So this, can we... Um, John gave us some of the what's been called the perfect storm. Did he miss anything? What about climate change? Well, there is a date, 1150, which um, the um, department in Belfast particularly emphasises from tree ring data as a particular event. Now, it's very difficult to fix this absolutely because it, it would have taken... In order for a society to suffer from climate, it shouldn't just be one year. It needs to be a range of years. And if you're in a vulnerable place like Malta, even one year may have an effect. But if you're in a more continental area or somewhere with a number of rival valleys such as Greece, you may be able to simply borrow from your neighbours and deploy the crops in a different way. So the response is very varied according to the geography that we're dealing with, I think it's fair to say, subject to climatic change. Are there any, is there anything that is disrupting the trade? I mean, I'm still having... I think I suppose I'm looking for a sort of key cause, aren't I? If there, are, what would you say were, could be called a couple, two or three of the key causes? Has anything uh, anything been omitted by John in his summary? Well, I think many of these societies had very difficult um, problems in passing on succession. Today we have institutions um, which are very, very organised and legally framed. And, and succession in all sorts of different ways are very easily understood. But in these societies, particularly in the West where I'm talking about, there are often levelling mechanisms by which if someone got too powerful, they had to give a big feast, they had to bury a large amount of the bronze in either a hoard, this is something that very much takes place in, in Northern Europe, or they had to put their materials into a burial. And so a lot of the aggrandizement, a lot of the aggrandizement was... Uh, was, um, was um, controlled by this process. I don't understand how you aggrandise yourself by burying your loot. Well, this is, this is the way by which one um, controls that aggrandisement. In other words, the burying... You are forced by the um, understandings of your society that it is, n- it is not permitted to become too powerful. Um, this is further west and further into temperate Europe, in other words. And there are good ethnographic accounts of this. The potlatch is the one that's always referred to, where you throw a big feast in order to bring you... You get a lot of prestige in your lifetime and or perhaps over a few months, but in terms of passing on that wealth to your successors, that is not allowed. And this leads to an instability in many of these societies, or it can lead either to an instability or to a society which doesn't grow at the same rate that we see in the Aegean. Linda Hewen, we're still there's still the troubling uh, fact, as I as I think it is, <coughs> that a lot of these things happened at around the same time to a lot of these kingdoms. I, I'm rather taken by the mysterious sea people who, and partly that name, and, and they, they're recorded by the Egyptians whose task in life was to record everything that happened in the world. And what effect, are they having an effect? Is, is something underneath going on, like the, the Goths in Rome? What's going on? Part of the problem in answering this is archaeological resolution, even with well-dated um, text, in that there seems to be an instability from for about 50 or 60 years or maybe more. So what seems like an event uh, gets magnified across the narrative. So yes, Ramesses III, um, yes, yeah. in Medinet Habu, 
he records a battle in year eight um, where he says there is an alliance that the peoples of the north made an alliance against him, a confederacy, and that they, he fought a sea battle. It was probably actually within the Nile Delta itself on the Pelusiac branch where he defeated an alliance of different people and he also defeated them on land. And the scary thing about the land lot was the change there is that for the first time we see people, um, that it's not just soldiers, but carts with women and children. So these are people coming to settle. Um, and so he has this narrative of a, of a big battle. And undoubtedly, something like that happened. But if you examine his record... <coughs> There are parts of it which are actually repeated from a first wave of what you might call sea peoples um, under Meron Patar. Where which are these is about sea peoples coming early. from? And what, so, I'm sorry to interrupt you, yes. please. Um, so you know, he is taking parts of the narrative and adding it. In fact, he only refers to two, the Cheka and the Weshes, as being of the sea. And others are the Sheridan, for instance, who, whom he mentions. Um, Originally, when these people were identified, people um, scholars made very, very simplistic equations. So the Sheridan kind of sounds like Sardinia, the Peleset are the Philistines, and they probably are. So there were some very facile equations. But the Sheridan um, first appear in the, th um, the mid-14th century as mercenaries in Ugarit and they, they kick around in the Egyptian army um, they fight on both sides in the Egyptian army they're settled from um, Ramesses II just before Merneptah um, he settles veterans in a village and that settlement continues through to Ramesses III he's still taking tax from them so these people are actually spread across some mm. of them are causing trouble others aren't but in the battle with Ramesses III, you do get some new people like the Peleset and the Chekhet, the Weshesh, who are never heard of before, and they make alliances, and they probably are coming in from outside. So they're attacking from outside. Maybe a focus on this, John Bennett, would be to talk just about the Hittites. Hmm. You have a great kingdom there, great buildings. That, that disappeared, the Hittite palaces and so on. So do we know specifically, can you tell us specifically what happened to the Hittites? Um, well, the the, the central um, uh, place, Hattushash, the, the the capital of the Hittite Empire, was destroyed in the same um, period, and we have actually wonderfully preserved grain uh, stores there, which have been a, a, a godsend for archaeobotanists to understand um, Hittite farming practices, for example. But uh, the Hittite Empire had, throughout the from the, the 15th century to to the end, as it were, had had, had always been uh, trying to bring in bits that were trying to get away from it, particularly on the west. So there's an, a, 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 there's an event with the Asuwa, there's, there's the possibility that Milawanda, which many people have uh, equated with Miletus uh, on the west coast of Turkey, uh, was, was taken over by, by Mycenaean Greeks and then recaptured again by the Hittites and so on. So it was a, it was a, a core in central Anatolia of Hittite speakers um, uh, and, and then a series of, of um, varyingly uh, tied um, polities uh, around about um, that that when 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 at the time of the collapse we we only know the name of the last Hittite empire emperor who was called Shupiluliuma the second um, and he what was his disappeared date? his dates uh, he he started in twelve oh seven we don't know when he finished but we, have you satisfied yourself that there there are reasons which you can tell us all about about why that particular great city great kingdom disappeared 
I, I can't. I'm afraid it's part of the the same the same um, the same uh, phenomenon. It seems. And we have an archaeological black hole here. We have, we? An, we have a textual black hole, and we have uh, we, we. What happens is that the, the this fragments into a series of what are called the Neo-Hittite kingdoms, uh, which are essentially smaller scale uh, kingdoms uh, using still using um, a, a, a particular uh, script. Um, hieroglyphic Hittite, which is, which is actually a Luvian language, um, uh, that continue that, that continue um, later on, and, and so on. Now, Simon, sorry, you can break cover. Um, we, you know, we, you admit destruction, significant changes, but you question collapse. Well, <clears throat> I think it, it very much depends on where you're looking at again in the in the European sphere. Well, well let's um, stick to a bit with that we we teased our listeners into. The eastern Mediterranean, Cyprus has got run around Turkey and that lot, Egypt and so on. So we just stick there. It gets to... It, it's enough. OK? Well, I, I think that there could easily be a switch in political organisation um, which is leads us to think it's collapse. In a, and there are technical terms which have been used in archaeology. So hierarchy is very clear to understand with a, an apex, <clears throat> whereas heterarchy is a term that is much used in current parlance, which means that you have, within a society, competing groups, almost factions, that are working together. So the archaeological record gives an impression of something radically different. And so it may just be a... It may be a more pleasant way of living in some respects. And indeed... If I can give you again, uh, threaten you with a picture from the West a little bit, there are these societies which uh, are held more in balance where um, hierarchy is not imposed and which continue their village life completely unaffected by this collapse at all. So th there are some examples which um, I should also refer to, such as in the Terra Mare in northern Italy is a very interesting example because it lies north of this continued development of Etruria and Latium um, from right from the Bronze Age, Trurian Latium, um, which is where the Etruscans and Latins um, start. It continues from the Bronze Age right into the Iron Age. So it has very deep-seated roots. It's not something that starts a few centuries later. But the Terramare beautifully contrasts with that. There, at an earlier date, and I think this is the important point a lot, and we can look at Spain as well, a number of these collapses are not in sequence with what is happening in the Eastern Mediterranean. So it's inherent in the the communities themselves, that they change their way of operating. They move from a, a more hierarchical way to a more competitive internal way, if I can put it in those terms. Yeah, we've got that, and that's very well expressed. But we go back to the Hittites, the Macedonians, sorry, the, the Mycenaeans, uh, the Babylonians, and so on, that we've been talking about, and, and the, the outrages of Egypt. They are being attacked, destroyed, and... Uh, Collapsing isn't a bad word, and although things pop up again a few centuries later, there's a struggle. So there are exceptions. Of course, villages don't get taken up in the mainstream events. Communications were like that, and of course there are exceptions. There always are, especially in times of poor communication. But wouldn't you agree, well, I'm from all your notes, uh, that, that this could be called some kind of end of something or other? Well, like I, the, late Bronze, I, come, the my, late Bronze Age comes to an end. I'm going to continue my slightly Western-orientated polemic and point out that a lot of this evidence is textual. In other words, it is very much in the minds of the people who are on the losing end of this spectrum. They, they want to make a fuss because their economic system is, is falling apart. They're no longer in control. I'm going to go to Linda Hewlin. Yes, I because think you pointed to her. I'm just yeah, taking directions from you. Yeah. You've run out of puff, or you think she's <laughs> going to back you up. 
I, I am going to back you That's up to you. a certain extent. <laughs> Cyprus is an in- interesting case in point with this. I mean, Cyprus um, was the main engine of copper in the eastern Mediterranean. Um, and the city of Enkemi, for instance, is more or less opposite Ugarit. And they clearly developed um, in tandem, uh, swapping tin and copper with one another on the routes east and west. Um, they both suffer from pirates. At one point, the Hittites claimed to invade Cy- Cyprus, although there's no real archaeological evidence for that. Um, Ugarit is clearly destroyed. Ugarit's a very important uh, it's, it's trading a por- port. It's the port, yes, yeah. and it's, it's the nexus of, of the land routes and the sea routes, um, moving copper and tin and other fine things. Now, the interesting thing about uh, Cyprus is its geography. It has this central Troodos Massif, and then squeezed around all of it in the middle are the copper-bearing deposits. So... Although we don't know, the ancient term for Alashir could mean the whole kingdom or it could just mean a few towns, and we really don't know. Um, It basically means that it was impossible for one city or one entity to control the copper trade because they all had access to it and they were all close to the sea. So at the end of this period... um, Cyprus reorganises itself. Some of the, the, the countryside storage places disappear. But Enkemi, after 1200, actually has its finest hour. It completely rebuilds itself on a, on a new grid, uses lots of fas- fancy Ashlar masonry, um, invests in temples. It has some people that's new. John Bennett, are we, are we, is the idea of the Bronze Age collapse uh, and drifting away from us as we do this programme and we'll be sued under the Trade Descriptions Act? Is that what's happening? Um, no, I think I think there's a there is a phenomenon that happens in the Eastern Mediterranean, which I think is probably best described as as a political collapse. Um, but uh, as Linda says, the, the, we are victims of the fact that we have textual information for for that, and we and we very much t- want to read the text very literally. Um, so what, what I think we can say is that the the trade evidence, both textual and uh, archaeological, suggests that these these entities, the Mycenaeans on the west. Um, and so on, were tightly bound up in a shared uh, enterprise, an enterprise where value was, was very much shared across that. And so these, these, these commodities moving around were, were essential. What I think is beginning to happen in the, as we approach 1200 is that the, the ability of these states to monopolise that trade um, when it happens, but certainly by 1200, is, is breaking down. And so we have people working under the the radar, as it were. There's a little bit of evidence of this in in, in the shipwrecks, where there's a, a shipwreck that dates about 1200, a, a century mm-hmm. after the Ulubarun wreck, whose um, cargo looks rather different from that of the Ulubarun wreck. It doesn't look like the a state-sponsored high-level cargo. Now, Simon, the Bronze Age seeds, and of course it wasn't tomorrow morning, to the Iron Age, and they overlap. Um, and that has a huge effect. What was it, and was it destructive in certain parts of the Mediterranean? Well, the Iron Age brings, obviously, a new material to bear, but, but it doesn't happen rapidly. Uh, the early Iron Age involves very little iron, and it's really only at the end of the Iron Age that you get it used um, efficiently and, and fully. So what dates are you talking about? Well, we're talking really effective use of iron isn't until the 3rd, 4th century BC, um, certainly in most of Europe. Um, p- potentially a little bit earlier in other areas, perhaps in Greece, and, um, a little bit earlier. But, but um, so we, the the full Iron Age is a much later phenomenon. And indeed, it is absolutely true that when this transition takes place, you see this very well in this country. There seems to be a jo- drop in circulation of all metals. 
at about seven seven hundred BC. So some there is a, a form of decline, maybe we could give it a term collapse in terms of trading um, enterprise at that time um, before it picks up again as the Iron Age as a new commodity um, begins to take role its its proper role. And bronze also takes a new role because bronze doesn't lose its role; it just shifts its position. It seems, uh, Linda Hewlin, is that, that these great palace kingdoms do disappear. And a few centuries later, they're replaced by much smaller states, and then we have the great <coughs> growth of the great, great Greek states and so on. So there's this gap in between on the, the maps, as it were, the timescales I've got from you three, it's two or three hundred at least, maybe more, years. What happens then, in that time? In that time? We're sort of not sure. Yes, you can say there is this hinge and the states in the Near East, well, the Eastern Mediterranean that we, that we knew of disappear. Um, Cyprus continues. And the Greek states have not appeared yet. And they have not yet appeared. Everything is on a much smaller scale, but trade does continue. Um, John referred to the, the Point Iria shipwreck, which is Cypriot and, and, and Cretan commodities sailing towards Greece. So, you know... That kind of surplus and smaller people who know someone who knows someone who's got a boat and know where they can sell it continues and provides a long-term persistence so that when in the Iron Age you get the spread of the Phoenicians right across the Mediterranean, when you get the Greeks spreading across the Mediterranean, they're doing it as smaller entities. It's not these enormous states that come together and organise huge donkey trains or huge ships like the Ulubarun. So the hinge is... is moving towards more merchant-driven trade on a smaller scale. To take that, <coughs> to take that on, John, is, is this gap, decline, collapse, whatever, is this the, the trigger for a new form of organisation, for uh, a, a not so much a resurgence as a, as a new invention of what these s- states, cities ta- could be? Um, absolutely. I think, I think what, what the... One could argue that iron, which of course, unlike copper and tin, is pretty much everywhere, and so is is readily accessible. And you don't have to do all the. So you don't have to build long distance trade routes to find it, and so on. Um, You can take a a sort of broad view that 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 undermines this this um, ability to monopolise long distance trade, and therefore smaller entities can get involved. If you take the Aegean as a, as a sort of barometer, the, the Cyprus is very important in the Bronze Age for copper, but in the 12th century, it's, a, it's the origin of, of certain types of iron objects which come in as prestige objects uh, into the Aegean. And uh, in, the, in the opposite direction, you have um, a pottery coming in from Italy uh, in the Aegean. So if you like, the Aegean is, is, is drawing in from, from both ends because of the, a shift in the way the trade system is working. You've talked about progression, Simon, and I've teased you a bit about it, but is there any sense in which we can see that the Etruscans and the Greeks emerged from the Mycenaeans and the Hittites and so on? Or is it, let's start again? I think all opportunities like this um, create new opportunities. In other words, if there is a collapse, there is a new version. There are people there who who see the Yeah, but if it was was new people doing what, what new people and doing what? I think they had new... They're not necessarily... Um, new people in a biological sense, but no, they were pe- people who um, knew in the, their motivation, as indeed Linda has mentioned, people who are organised politically in a different way. And so you get the emergence of different types of political organisations, the polis in Greece, 
the I mean the small the, the small the small, city the state. small city state which is mainly based on voting um, males but still it has a democratic heart at least in Except principle for women and slaves it, it, exactly yes, yes that's right and then um, the the Etruscans probably are a little bit more like what preceded they are very rich plutocrats and they retain a family organisation um, political organisation within their midst so that they don't have the, the same um, corporate unity perhaps that, that, um, that Greece does and they are large, generally speaking larger in scale than the average Greek city-state too so there are various versions of what emerges there isn't one rule and the Latins of course the successful people um, had a different version which incorporated other peoples and the course of time. This is a very lumpen question, but we're near the end of the program, Linda. Is there a sense in which there were any way for the Greeks, let's take the Greeks and the Etruscans, let's stick with the Greeks, who would look across what they called the Dark Ages and say, well, we're not going to go like that because look what happened to them? I don't think there was that much of a cultural memory, um, but I think seafaring nations um, have an underlying persistence and knowledge that is independent of states. So I could bring the Phoenicians in as well. They were famed for their fast ships. Yes, they suffered destructions um, at the end of the late Bronze Age, and then they were hemmed in by Assyrian expansion. The only way to go was into the Mediterranean. But they were probably drawing upon sailors' knowledge of routes anyway. And, of course, the Mediterranean, the winds and the currents are still the same, so they're going to broadly take you in the same framework. And all trade was personal. So you traded with people you knew and families you, you knew and you inherited those personal relationships through, through you know, across the generations. So that probably continued. John? Well, <coughs> I think there is a sense in which the Greeks of the 8th, 7th century BC were aware of their, as it were, Mycenaean past, as we would call it. They would call it their heroic past. We can see it in, in the, the, the Homeric text, which uh, it remembers a time which... Uh, clearly was um, what we would associate with the Mycenaean period. It was a time in which it was recognised that things were greater than they are now. Yet, ironically, the, the construction that's placed in the, in the Homeric poems describes a world which looks much less impressive. It looks much more like the 8th century world. Um, so there is that, 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 that historical memory, I think. And, of course, in the, the sequence, the other um, metal, metallic sequence, as it were, in Hesiod, the gold, silver, bronze, iron age of decline that he describes in his poem, he has to insert the age of heroes just following the, the bronze age before the iron age because he knows historically that that was a period that he has to take account of. And there may have been, I don't know, <coughs> ruins enough remaining, of magnificence remaining that... Uh, Made them think it's time to finish the program by the look of it. Okay. My senior was there in 150 AD. <laughs> <laughs> and our <hero> Okay. <laughs> Thanks very much, John Bennett, Linda Hewlin, and Simon Surratt. Next week we'll be talking about William Blake's Songs of Innocence and Experience. Thank you very much for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. <laughs> I enjoyed that. You're on now. Hello out there. Yes, we're going to do the, the, the PS. Well, I, I apologise for my polemic. Well, I was all right. I enjoyed it. I, I wanted to get a bit of <laughs> You obviously got to get it in, so I had to manoeuvre it. So you, I, I'm it, sorry, I manoeuvred. So you didn't, didn't bomb the programme before it <laughs> no, no, started. No, that no, was no, a, sorry. <laughs> But coming back to something you were saying at the beginning about mm. uh, about bronze as a as a as a transformational material, as it mm. were, mm. It, it does seem to have qualitatively changed the way in which 
people are interacted across across the entirety of Europe, yeah, right into yeah. the, the Eastern Mediterranean. It's mm. not it's plentiful enough for it mm. to be widely available, but it's not it's it's rare enough to to have to capture those yes. those routes and so on. So I think you have a you have a real change in as you come into the Bronze Age with with things like amber, for example, moving from the mm. Baltic down mm. ultimately uh, into the Aegean world and so on. That's um, that, and, and I think one of the transformations is the way in which the body is presented. This is something my colleague Mary Louise Sorensen in Cambridge would really want to emphasise that this gave new opportunities of presenting the body, not just men, but also women. And we always think of this as a very martial, sort of sword-led experience. Indeed, the sword was a major invention of the Bronze Age. But we well, also... Why didn't we say that? Blast. I- I'm sorry. <laughs> but, um, I mentioned swords. Yeah, I think you did. Yes, the, the, the dagger, muscle. rapier, sword. Because <laughs> we focusing on the end. They were the end. Fa- yes, we're focusing <laughs> on the end, yes. We didn't look at the full sequence. Yeah. But, well, but, the but, by then. but the presentation of the body, I think that there's a a one, if I can be discussed, it's a wonderful article by someone called Paul Traherne, yes. which is absolutely beautiful. It describes the body beautiful. This is very masculine, in fact, and Mary Louise would want to add the, the, the feminine side to it. But, but that really shows the new potential of this material. It's very sensual. It, 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 it's almost a, 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 a gold that is more widely distributed. That is, in other words, it, and it's something you've made yourself, so you, you have power over it in a, almost a magical cosmological way. So I think these are elements that perhaps we should add to the equation. But th- there are also very uh, practical and utilitarian things. Mm, There's a true. site, uh, Marsa Matru, on the North African coast of, of Egypt, um, which there was a, a small island there where... S- Mediterranean sailors would call in, and one of the things, and in exchange for ostrich egg shells, one of the things they did exchange what ostrich egg shells, which were exotic um, in in the rest of the Mediterranean, they would take small crucibles with them and make on the spot fish hooks, arrowheads, uh, needles, things that the population there and possibly the Egyptian garrison nearby couldn't easily access. So it was it was the use of small um, crucibles was part of the armoury of traders moving around the Mediterranean on ships saying, well, we've got this small bit of bronze what do you want made? We'll make it for you now. Right. So I like the thing, I mean, family firms talking of family firms over the centuries and over the sea. What is interesting about the fall of Ugarit is that if it hadn't fallen, we may still have ended up with the same kind of situation because we can see in the texts um, for instance that one um, trader was exempted from tax on his goods coming back from Crete, which implies that everyone else was taxed, but he wasn't. We have other texts where the way the society was organised was that um, in return for land um, various people had to offer services, often military, but not always. And this was called the Pilku service. And towards the end of this period, we start getting sales of land for which the Pilku service is stripped away. This means that eventually you will end up with a class of people who have wealth that is independent of royal patronage, Pro- you know, similar to something that happened in, in Europe in the Middle Ages with the, the rise of the merchants. Um, it got halted by these attacks, um, but the end result was the same, that in the Iron Age we have merchant-led trade. One of the things that in- interested me about the bronze is that in one or two cases, of course it was thrashed very heavily in warfare, <coughs> but bronze armour wasn't as good as beaten leather. For- <laughs> There's a very famous experiment um, which used to have a picture in our museum where um, John Coles, who was the Bronze Age specialist, 
paradoxically held the leather shield against um, the, the Paleolithic archaeologist who was holding the bronze, and, and it's quite clear who won in, in this particular battle. Um, and indeed, a the, lot... The, the, the leather shield... Eh? The leather shield won, and indeed, a lot of this armour is for show and parade. It, it was not necessarily as effective as is made out. It, it, mm. was, it was to engage in psychological and um, one-upmanship. Um, well, if they uh, polished yeah, it yeah. enough and stood facing the sun, they could mm. blind the enemy. Yeah, exactly, they, really? that, that, that sort of effect. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're being, we're being seduced by the producer here. There are more than 700 programmes to download and listen to for free from the In Our Time website, where you'll also find a reading list for this episode.